Hello everyone, this is your host Ramakrishna from Usha Investment Group LLC. Welcome back to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degrees views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investing. For those who are looking for tips, strategies, best and challenging experiences. Also, I request you to share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Today's our guest is Chris Calandra from Elliott Wealth Management Services. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me, Rana. I've been uh, looking forward to this uh, discussion all day today. I'm glad we're doing this. Sure, absolutely. Thank you very much. And a little bit about Chris. Chris is the founder and principal of Elliott Wealth Management Services, LLC, which has offices in Madison, Connecticut and Summerfield, Florida. Chris is a certified financial planner with over 29 years of experience helping small business owners, retirees and families achieve their financial goals and objectives. He is dedicated to providing each client with the individual attention and tailored strategies to achieve their goals. Chris is committed to devoting as much time and efforts possible with clients to explain financial concepts, strategies, and investment alternatives in a way that is easily understood, allowing Chris diverse client base to make informed financial decisions. He's licensed for life, health, and the variable insurance lines of business, and he has affiliated with SagePoint Financial since 2005. Chris is also the host of the Simply Financial podcast. So with that, Chris, you want to add anything to your background? No, I would just say, and, uh, you know, I'm a certified financial planner. So we work with clients with financial planning and investment management. But I think compared to a lot of financial planners that are out there, I embrace the idea of incorporating real estate investing into the wealth building process. It's something that I am not afraid of, Rana, and it's not something I view as competition for dollars that otherwise might be invested in paper assets like stocks, bonds, mutual funds. I love to see clients build wealth building plans that incorporate both paper assets and real estate. So I'm looking forward to our discussion. Absolutely. So thank you. And you mentioned you have experience on the real estate side. So how did you get into real estate space, Chris? Yeah. So actually, I started at a young age, uh, Rana. When I was 24, I bought uh, a condo in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, I was only a few years out of college and not making a ton of money, but I bought a foreclosure condo that had two bedrooms and I rented the second bedroom to friends of mine uh, and they paid me rent, helped offset the mortgage payments. And that was my start. And then after getting married and buying my first home, I kept the condo and it turned into a rental property. So I was able to get started at a young age and it wasn't the greatest deal ever, but it was a nice entry into real estate investing. Got it. Got it. Are you focusing on multifamily space as well, Chris? Yes. uh, I have over the years experimented with a variety of different real estate investing kind of opportunities. I, uh, built a spec house. I did a series of flips um, soon after the Great Recession, that 2009, 2010 period. But I really like multifamilies uh, and commercial properties the best as opposed to single family. And so over time, through a little bit of trial and error, Rana, I kind of feel like I found my niche, kind of what works for me, what plays to my strengths, what I like. 
and um, it's multifamily and then also commercial properties like office space, light industrial like that. So um, I'm a big fan of multifamily, but um, it does depend on what area you buy in. You know, you have to know who you are. One of the many mistakes I made early on is buying multifamilies in some areas that didn't really work for my skill set. Got it. So you're, you're also a financial advisor and also a real estate investor. So how, how do you see like current market space? It's insane, right? So when we look at the real estate market, we see as hot a real estate market as ever. And prices have gone up tremendously, as have rents, as have costs of fixing up properties, you know, labor costs. Uh, supplies are very expensive. Supplies are in short supply, a lot of delays. It's a really, really challenging uh, market out there. It's a great market if you want to sell, of course, because there's a tremendous shortage of properties on the market. You have a tremendous imbalance. And I've done some episodes of this, Rana, on uh, my podcast, uh, Simply Financial, because this supply demand imbalance is not going to get resolved very easily. There's a lot of factors that have come into play. For example, since the Great Recession, you know, 2008, 2009, you know, the US simply hasn't built enough new homes to keep up with population growth. So we already had a constrained supply going into the pandemic that had built up over a lot of years. And it didn't really manifest itself. It didn't really become a big issue until you had the other factors come into play during the pandemic. So some of those other factors are people stayed at home and they found greater appreciation for their homes and decided to put money into their homes, new patios, better home offices, uh, redo the kitchen. I mean, a lot of money was spent during the pandemic improving properties, which helped drive up the value of the properties. You also have uh, the federal government and the Federal Reserve in response to the pandemic pump lots and lots and lots of money into the system. So you have all this money sloshing around in the U.S. economy. And for a whole host of reasons, Americans have decided that a fair amount of that money was going to go into real estate and people wanted to buy homes and created an environment where they were bidding up prices. Rana, unlike 2008's Great Recession, this time around, people seem to have the money. If you think about, and I'm not talking so much about multifamily, but talk about single family, a lot of the homes that are transacting these days, a lot of them are cash deals. It's not like 2008 Great Recession or before that, where people were doing all these crazy loans, no money down, no income verification, no paperwork, 120% loan to value. There's none of that crazy stuff going on, or at least not much of it. And people can afford to bid up these prices in a lot of instances. They often have really good down payments or they're cash buyers. And 18%, I just saw this um, learned of this statistic, Ron, and maybe you're aware of it. 18% of the homes that were bought, I think it was last year, or maybe over the last 12 months, are being bought by institutions. And if you think about that, if they're buying, it's not like a family that's selling a home to buy a bigger one. Um, they're only buying, meaning they're taking up supply, but they're not adding a corresponding property 
um, to the supply side. They're just buying and not selling. And that's why the supply demand imbalance may last for a while. And so I feel like I'm talking an awful lot. There's there's an incredible amount going on, but this market is really strong, very notable. And I believe personally that the supply uh, demand imbalance will last longer than a lot of people are thinking. Got it. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, there's lots of demand, but less supply. I totally agree on that point. That, that's the reason, you know, single family side types are going up, you know. And it's hard to put supply on the market, right? Because if you wanted to build, let's say, an apartment building, you know, a 10, 20 unit apartment building could be any size. First off, it takes time to do generally, right? There's a lot of planning and zoning. Uh, but today it's also trickier because of the supply chain difficulties. It's a challenge to get the labor. It's a challenge to get the raw materials and the shortages where there's delays in getting the goods make the timeline of building even more challenging than it normally is. All that to say, it's not going to be easy to just get a lot of supply onto the market. It's going to take some time. Yeah, got it. And uh, what other variables you would look, you know, from uh, overall, you know, overall outlook point of view? As a as a financial planner or you know real estate investor, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of sticking with the real estate, I think that um, investors and real estate buyers who are waiting to buy because they believe that they're going to get bargains when quote unquote the market declines uh, and reverses, I think might be mistaken in most locales. I would not anticipate a drop in real estate prices, generally speaking. Now, there may be some locations where a business shuts down or relocates. You know, there's probably exceptions. As a general rule, though, I think that real estate prices will not come down notably, which means that waiting is problematic. I know some real estate investing uh, folks out there are talking about when foreclosures tick up and other factors where they think that uh, the the supply demand equilibrium is going to shift where it's going to become a buyer's market and they're going to be able to get bargains. I don't see in the cards anytime soon, even if we enter into a recession, which I think is increasingly likely where the U.S. economy shrinks for two quarters or more. I think that conventional wisdom that thinks that waiting to buy is going to prove to be profitable might be mistaken. What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm also thinking that lines, mainly because of you know, less supply and demand and you know inflation stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's your take on like real estate next 12 to 18 months and how exactly you're planning your investments? Yeah. So I, uh, the last property I bought was in um, earlier 2021 and I have not sold anything personally. Uh, There's nothing in my real estate portfolio that I would like to sell, even though the prices are very good and very attractive. Um, But I anticipate that I'm not likely to buy over the next stretch and really just to let it play out. And it's not because I think necessarily I'm gonna get a big bargain later on. I think it's just more about, I consider myself Rana, uh, more of a value kind of investor. I want a bargain. And 
That doesn't mean you need to go necessarily and steal a property, but I want to get good value. And it's hard to get good value when uh, you're involved in deals where there's multiple offers, aggressive offers, people throwing around money, in my view, somewhat recklessly. So I think uh, personally, I'm not likely to buy anything. I'm not likely to sell anything for the next 12 to 18 months. I'll just wait, see how it plays out. My sense is that real estate, multifamily in particular, is likely to continue to increase in price and value, not as explosively as it has over the last stretch. Maybe the growth returns to something more normal, like lower single digit growth as as, um, compared to the explosive growth we've seen. But I think it'll continue to do, um, multifamily will continue to do well. I think in general, most locations, you have a shortage of multifamily uh, units available. And I think, like I said earlier, more broadly, that that supply demand imbalance will stay in play for longer than people think. And so for multifamily, I think their prices will hold, continue to go up, although maybe a little slower than in the past. Is that square with your thinking? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm seeing like little bits, uh, I mean, prices are a little bit decreasing, not that much, but uh, definitely number of buyers pool is decreasing, definitely. Yeah, and, and also let's add that um, for um, landlords, you know, you have uh, pricing power uh, with inflation, with the cost of goods going up, um, you have to uh, raise rents. And in all likelihood, tenants are expecting it because everything else is going up. And you, you have pricing power. And so your cash flow, your ability to charge higher rents is pretty strong in this market, which, which also makes multifamily or rental properties um, attractive now, not just because the prices, the values are going up, but because there's a shortage, which is leading to rent increase opportunities. Yeah. Yes. Correct. So uh, would you share any of your best real estate investing experience so far? (laughs) So I've had some really good experiences. Uh, Hopefully you'll ask me about bad ones too, and I could start crying and stuff. But um, I've had some very good experiences. And, you know, I love, I know you, I probably shouldn't say this because it's politically charged today. I don't mean it, but sort of the art of the deal. You know, Trump had that book and I'm using that terminology more of, I like the creativity of finding properties, maybe changing the use, negotiating creative financing terms. I really like that aspect of real estate, kind of the creative deal making and the creative management of the properties. So I think one of the best experiences I had was um, with a partner of mine in uh, Connecticut. We bought a smaller multifamily and um, we negotiated a good deal but we knew the property had some issues and uh, it turns out that they had several fire code violations and uh, Rana, the owner had ignored the local fire officials, which I think you and I could agree and we could advise our clients that that's not a good idea. They don't like when you ignore them. And so uh, we had this contract and we went back to the uh, we went back to the owner and said, listen, we would like to buy this property. But the fire inspector, he's threatening to take action against the property, against you. And 
we'll still buy the property, but we're going to need you to discount the price. And then we'll take over the obligation of dealing with the fire inspector. And under threat of the fire inspector, who is putting some serious heat on the owner, we were able to uh, reduce the previously negotiated price to a significantly lower price because we were solving the problem for the seller who didn't want to deal with the fire inspector for whatever reason. We took on that, um, but because we dealt with the fire inspector uh, in a professional manner, um, we were able to satisfy uh, their requirements well, well under budget. So it ended up being a very profitable deal because we solved the seller's problem, got a discounted price, and brought the property up to code and made the fire inspection team very happy. Did I explain that okay? Yeah, awesome. That's a good one. And would you also share any challenging experiences in real estate space? <laughs> yeah, this is when I might start crying, Rana. So um, there was a particular locale in Connecticut uh, years ago that um, was kind of a, a little bit more of an urban area, a little bit more of a tough area that had seen economic decline over you know a generation or two. And I'm a numbers guy, right? I'm a financial geek. And looking at the properties on paper, the opportunities on paper, my spreadsheets, I saw big fat cash flow, big fat profits, and um, went into the market and bought and really got my head handed to me because the market was different from where I was buying before. There was nothing inherently wrong about the market, but it really didn't play to my strengths. Um, and so one property in particular, I really didn't buy it at a good price. I, I overpaid for the property, which of course I learned later. Um, I didn't do my homework nearly well enough. And then I compounded the problem, Rana, by not managing it very well. Um, I think in hindsight, I kind of knew that I didn't buy it well. And I think I compounded the mistake by then not paying close enough attention to it in terms of the management. And it ended up being a bit of a crap show. And I sold it at a loss. I lost a painful amount of money, not something that caused me bankruptcy or anything like that, but it was, I, I sold it at a loss. I actually had to bring money to the closing. And I'm sure that the person that I sold it to, you know, made money on the deal. But the lesson um, that I took from that is that you do have to know yourself and you can't compound problems. And also when you make a mistake, acknowledge the mistake and take the loss. I was so happy after that closing, even though I knew I lost money, even though I had to come up with money at the closing, it was so liberating, so freeing to be done with the property that had caused me stress and embarrassment. There was no joy in it. Not only was it not profitable, it was just a chore. And um, I was so happy when I sold it because you know what? I was able to then move on to other opportunities a little wiser and able to move on. So that was my worst experience, although I did learn a lot from it. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that experience. Uh, any one advice that have impact on you, Chris? Yeah, I think um, know thyself is, uh, I think, good advice is that I have my strengths. I have my weaknesses. I'm not good at everything. And when you put together a plan to build wealth, whether it's real estate, small business, the stock market, whatever, you know, you want to have a plan. And I'm a big believer in having a plan. Uh, but part of that is knowing yourself so that you have a plan that emphasizes your strengths and mitigates, minimizes your weaknesses. 
And if you could, if you could do well on that front, uh, you could really have some success and avoid a lot of pitfalls. So that's my quick piece of advice. Awesome. And any books that impacted your life in what way? I'm glad you asked that because I'm an avid reader. I probably read, you know, 30 to 40 uh, books a year. And I think uh, not only do I enjoy reading, I think that the, uh, the knowledge and creativity that I've gotten from reading uh, now that I'm 51 years old has really been very, very powerful. And so uh, there's a lot of books I could point to, but I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple and some of them may be familiar to your audience, but um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I think is a foundational real estate investing book. The author, Robert Kiyosaki, is very popular, although less so now than years ago. I don't agree with everything in the book. I think there's definitely some flaws in what Robert Kiyosaki advises. Again, though, a great foundational book. Another one is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss that talks a lot about structuring your business life so you're not a slave hours-wise to work, to create a work-life balance, to put processes in place and really think through whether you're spending your time wisely when you're attempting to make money. And uh, I love that book. Uh, If I have time for two others, Rana, The Millionaire Next Door, it's an older book, but it still is very valuable today. The lessons it talks about uh, who millionaires are in the US. It's not the rock star, the athlete, the celebrity. It talks about your everyday millionaire, Um, what their spending habits are, what their attitudes are, what their ethos on money is. It's very instructive when you look at the formula for success. And it is not spending money recklessly to have the fanciest car and the best suits. Um, And then the last one is a book, Influence, by Dr. Robert Cialdini. That is kind of a psychology book, but it talks a lot about how to influence people, how the mind works, how our um, reflexes are built into our DNA and biology. And it's a great book on interpersonal communication. So I think those are four books, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Four Hour Work Week, Millionaire Next Door, and Influence. Awesome. Awesome books. And how are you giving back to community? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. You know, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm 51 years old now, and I'm fortunate. I'm blessed that I've, uh, I, I've achieved uh, some good success in my life, and I'm much more comfortable uh, wealth-wise, income-wise, uh, than I was, of course, when I was younger. And I tell you, one of the wonderful ways that I enjoy the most in giving back is helping young professionals, including recent college graduates, helping them network and secure jobs. I love it when a young person is introduced to me or comes to me and I'm able to make some introductions, give them some career advice, uh, helping them find uh, a good job to break in in the early years. So that's one of the things I enjoy the most and it's a form of giving back. Got it. Thank you. And how can listeners can connect with you, Chris? Yeah, we mentioned a couple of times. I have a podcast, uh, Simply Financial with Chris Calandra. It's on all of the major podcast platforms. I'm in my sixth season and we'll talk a lot about the things we talked about today, um, investing, macroeconomics, personal finance, uh, things of that nature. And uh, it's very well received. Uh, It's something that I love to do. And then my financial planning practice is Elliott Wealth Management Services. 
and your listeners could find out more about the work we do for our clients by going to the website, which is elliotwealth.com. Elliot has two L's and two T's. In fact, if somebody wanted to do an introductory complimentary consultation at the website, um, they could sign up for that. Awesome. And thank you, Chris. Thanks for sharing your view, views on current you know, economic and market situation. And also thanks for sharing your best and challenging experience on real estate side. Rana, it was an absolute joy. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website, ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.